Welcome to Flock Talk, a podcast of GCF North. Flock Talk exists to inform, encourage, and inspire. This is your host, Dave Farley, lead pastor at GCF North. This is season one, episode seven. This is our first uh, podcast before a live audience, an audience of millions, millions. <laughs> Actually, there's about 30 people here. Uh, I, I am joined tonight by Dr. Bruce Ware, and, and he is a professor of theology at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and, and Rupert something, Coleman yes, Chair, yes. explain what that is. Yes, it, well, we have endowed chairs in schools. That That is the money that has been contributed, pays the salary of the professors, so they don't have to bring in extra money for it. So that's nice, you know, for an institution to have endowed chairs, and the name of this chair is uh, Al Mohler's pastor growing up who baptized him, under whom he came to faith in Christ as a young man. And so that's a very uh, meaningful name and person to our president, Dr. Albert Mohler. Yes. So, so Dr. Ware is a, a full-time a professional theologian, written lots of books, uh, spends most of his days teaching um, graduate students, uh, people getting their master's degrees and their PhDs, so I wanted to ask him some questions um, about some contemporary theological controversies or issues. There's several I want to cover, but first and foremost, why does theology matter? Oh my. Well, it matters because everything in life, from how you think to how you feel to how you live, is shaped by your theology. So your theology is either going to be a good theology that has a robust view of God and gives you a humble view of you and leads you to dependence upon the Lord and obedience. It's either going to be that, or it's going to be a theology that makes much of you instead of making much of God and much of what you think ought to be done and so on. So I think we live in a world of theologians. It's just that they have the wrong theology and they don't know the true God. They don't realize how glorious he is, how wondrous and how little we are before him and what a joy it is to follow in his ways. So with that in mind, uh, if, if you could say everyone here has to read these three to five theological books, mm. besides your books, of course. Yes, of which, course. Which, which, which three to five books do these guys have to simply, they right. simply must read these books before right. they die? Well, the book that uh, impacted me the most is one I would highly recommend. I read it at the end of my freshman year of college, and I've never been the same since. The Lord used it in a mighty way. That man right there, Wayne Pickens, loaned me his copy of The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer at a time of spiritual crisis in my life. And God used that book to awaken me to the greatness and the glory of God. And I would encourage you, you know, in that preface of that book, Tozer says that the view of God entertained among evangelicals today, this was written in 1962, the view of God entertained by evangelicals today is so low, so beneath the dignity of God as to constitute idolatry. So he wrote this book to awaken the evangelical world to the greatness and the glory of God, and it is a marvelous book. So The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer, uh, J.I. Packer's Knowing God, uh, just is one of the very best uh, available out there. I think the, a book by uh, John Stott on the cross of Christ is just superb. I mean, it's another one of these classic treatments of a rich doctrine that is glorious and wonderful. Um, Anthony Hokema, who is 
dead now, but what, I taught at Calvin um, Seminary for many years. He wrote a few books before he died that are great. One of them I would highly recommend is Created in God's Image that deals with the doctrines of sin and humanity both with such insight and such biblical fidelity. I would commend that to you. So those are a few anyway. And his book, Saved by Grace, we were just talking about. Yes, yeah. awesome. Save by Grace. Yeah, right. Um, so I, I took a class from you several years ago at Western, I think it was part of my doctoral program, called Friendly Fire. Yes. Very clever title. Yeah. Uh, and in that class, we, we read, I think, 10 books, and each book dealt with a theological controversy that's currently raging in the church. So I, I, I want to ask about some of those issues that I think are really important today. So the first one is the issue of complementarity. Yeah. I know that you were on the CDMW board yeah, for yeah. quite a while. Were you the president for a while? Yes, for okay. about six years. Uh, and and, and um, I think it, Piper and Grudem invented that term complementarity, yes, correct? Yes, they did. They did. Um, so, so briefly, tell us what that word means. Yes. And, and then tell us about, uh, it, it's now called either soft and hard, broad and narrow complementarity. Mm -hmm. Tell us what those things are and why it matters. Okay. Well, the term complement complementarianism came with, with, uh, from John Piper and Wayne Grudem when they wanted a term to represent um, the biblical view that hadn't been misshapen by people who held a patriarchal view with a kind of harshness and that justified mistreatment of women. They wanted to distance themselves altogether from that. They also did not want to hold to an egalitarian position, which was being argued strongly at the time as it still is today. So they thought this term complement, in indicating two things that what one completes the other. This is clearly the case when God created the woman after the man. He said to the man, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for you. So she comes to complete the work of what God does. But she comes as one who is isha instead of ish, one who is one man, not man, but she comes from him, but she comes under him. So even though she is equal in nature with him, <clears throat> she is also to submit to him as her husband in, in, in his le leadership. So the complementary view does hold the Bible teaches clearly that there is to be male headship, that is the headship of the man and the submission of the woman, both in marriage and in, in the uh, uh, Christian community and church. Uh, where, there, where there are male elders only in the church. Yeah. Two follow-ups. Why, why is this so important, this issue? And number two, where do you see complementarians compromising right now? Yeah. Well, it's so important, not because it's a first-tier issue. You can be a Christian and go to heaven and be an egalitarian. So, I mean, I have many friends who, who are in that category, and I would never put it at the level of justification by faith or substitutionary atonement or those but it is still important, very important, because it indicates a way of interpreting the Bible that can get around very clear, straightforward statements of the Bible that somehow you can avoid. And if you can do that on this issue, you can do it on other issues. And we saw that in denominations who years ago went the egalitarian route on the women's issue, and where are they today on homosexuality and on LGBTQ? You know, I mean, it's, they've moved in that direction. So, you know, Jack Rogers, who was my supervisor at Fuller Seminary, I got to know him very well, and he was kind of Mr. Egalitarian on campus at Fuller, and Mr. 
anti-inerrantist on campus. And when he became uh, the, oh, you'll have to help me here with the PCUSA, the chief guy, what did they call moderator him? General Mo General moderator, General Assembly. Moderator, thank you. Yeah. Moderator of the General Assembly. Um, he was asked by somebody, what, what would you say to conservatives in your, in your denomination who think that the ordination of gays and the gay lifestyle is sinful? And he, this was his answer. He said, I would like to help them see that the way we learned to read the Bible on the women's issue is the way we need to learn to read the Bible on homosexuality. I mean, it is so telling, isn't it? It's not, let's follow the Bible. It's let's learn to read it in a way that fits what we think. And so this is where it is so dangerous, Dave, is that it leads people away from, I mean, just a faithful following of Scripture. No matter where that leads us, that's where we go as those who believe the truth and the, the sufficiency of biblical teaching. And so, you know, today we have a movement within complementarianism that's troubling because they want a minimalist complementarianism. I'm about the, you know, just the, the least possible that you could have and still call it complementarian. So most of these people are what I call one-point complementarians. They, they can't avoid, so it's really, you know, church and home. Those are the two points. So they really can't avoid the Ephesians 5 statement of, you know, wives submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ. They, you know, you, hard to get around that one. So they believe that there is some kind of submission in the home, but they try to avoid it as much as possible in the church to allow women to preach and allow, allow women to be, you know, leaders in the church and to have the same basic position that men have in the church. You even see that at Saddleback today. Uh, Rick, as Rick Ward stepped down, they hire a couple who become the co-pastors in that church, and she preaches there as well. So it's a, it's a kind of complementarianism that um, you know, still, still wants to affirm the term, but they've watered it down, and they're violating clear biblical teaching. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.12, I don't allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. And then he goes back to creation for... It was the man who was created first, not the woman. Four, you know, he gives three reasons stated there, all going back to Genesis 2 and 3 uh, for his support. So this is indicating it's not something, it's not a prohibition based on some, um, something inappropriate going on at the Church of Ephesus. This is something that reflects God's created design. So again, goodness, if we're going to be Bible-believing people, we, we need to accept what God has prescribed for how we conduct ourselves in the church as well as in the home. Okay, this next one's gonna be hard to summarize quickly. But in the last uh, two or three decades, there's been a movement called the New Perspective on Paul that has tried to undermine the historic teaching on justification. Um, and, and as you and I know, it's it's made massive inroads in evangelicalism. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it began back with, with E.P. Sanders and James Dunn and then Tom Wright today. Um, but can, can, you, can you give the guys just a, a, a brief, it's hard to do this brief because it's complicated, but a brief explanation of what it is, why it's dangerous, and where we're currently at with that particular controversy. How many of you guys have heard of N.T. Wright, Tom Wright, New Perspective on Paul? Okay, about half the guys. Yeah, so it's, it's really... Um a frustrating position because uh, it, it wants to propose that justification in the Bible really relates to 
accepting Gentiles without insisting that they become Jews, you know, and, and, and which, which, of course, was a problem in the early church of the, these so-called Judaizers, the people who claim to be following Christ, but still you have to be circumcised, still you have to follow the food law. So that was a problem. But when Paul talks about justification, he clearly does not mean that. I mean, so for example, in Galatians 2.16, he says this, a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we are justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. So it's, it's just clear there in many other places that justification stands against not, you know, trying to make uh, Jewish, I'm sorry, Gentile converts into Jews. That's not what Paul is concerned about. That is an issue, but it's not this one. His issue is, if you think that you can be made right with God through by, by keeping the law, you're wrong. Uh, it has to be through faith in Christ. And Jesus himself in Luke chapter 18, you remember the tax collector and the, the Pharisee, and the tax collector, you know, beat his breast, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. So and even Jesus himself acknowledges justification has to do with whether or not you think your righteousness is your basis for right standing with God, what you do, or is it a, an, a, an appeal to God you know, as Peter will say, it's for a clean conscience, an appeal to God for forgiveness of sin through faith, and he justifies by faith. I love that text because the moment the tax collector believes, in that moment he's declared righteous. Yeah. Not after he goes and works really hard to be a good Christian, but in that moment, yeah. a declaration comes down. As you said earlier, justification involves two things, the removal of sin and the imputation of righteousness. And depending on which book you're reading event to, right? Because he's very right. slippery and hard to pin down. Uh, he he denies, denies or at least minimizes the idea of the imputation of righteousness That's from right. Christ to us. Um, so it's it's a dangerous teaching, and, and it seems like I think that the church has kind of moved moved past that. Is that your perspective on this? I at think least so. at least evangelicals have wrestled with this, right? And they've said we disagree with that. But for a while there, it was very prevalent and dangerous. Yes, right. Yeah. Yep, I think that's right. Yep. Um, okay, the, the next one is um, inerrancy. Okay. And it seems like no matter how many times this battle is, is fought, it, 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 it seems like there's this constant erosion of inerrancy. Right. Um, going back to the 80s, the Chicago Statement was created that, that really laid out the position of inerrancy. Um, but ever since then, there's, there's been naysayers and deniers. Mm -hmm. So how important is it to affirm this mm -hmm. inerrancy? Uh, and and what, what, what is the current state of this debate of controversy? Well, first, how important is it? Is it, my goodness, if you want a Bible that truly is authoritative, you have to believe it's inerrant. Because if it's not inerrant, who decides where the errors are that need to be rejected and, and uh, dismissed? It's us, right? It's us readers. So we, we become the authority over the authority. In other words, we have primary authority on deciding what is acceptable and what is not. So there is no way you can deny inerrancy and claim to, to hold to biblical authority with a straight face. You can't actually do that. 
So to stand under the Bible completely, to have it as completely authoritative, you have to believe that because it is all the Word of God, which is exactly what Paul says in 2 Timothy, uh, 2 Thessalonians 2.13, when you accepted it, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but as the Word of God, which does its work in you who believe. I think that's 2 Thessalonians 2.13. I'd have to look to be sure. Uh, and, or, you know, obviously uh, 2 Timothy uh, 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So to believe that it is from God, who does not lie, who always speaks the truth, means that the Bible then is truth. Thy word is truth, uh, John 17, 17. So uh, it, it just gives you a foundation of confidence that when you understand the Bible uh, speaking it's teaching. So whatever the Bible teaches as true is true. We don't have to stand in judgment over it. We bow to it in acceptance and we apply it. We follow it. So indeed, that's why it's so important. And where it's slipping today is I think it's coming mostly, not entirely, but mostly from the evangelical community that has been enamored with macroevolution and believes that um, you know that science actually has that one right and evangelical theology got that one wrong that there is not a literal historical atom and so on and so they you know postulate this 10,000 or so hominoid uh, beings that come into existence at one time and one of them is picked out as an atom you know and so on but you know honestly the bible just does not allow that view it just it just doesn't um, is it okay to continue on this for a second? Yeah, because I was going to ask you about the historical oh. atom issue as well. Okay, so, yeah, okay. Very good. Good transition. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, obviously the text like Romans 5, 12, through one man sin into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men. So, I mean, a text like that, as an Adam all died and Christ all remained alive, those are very important verses that indicate the historicity of Adam. But I think the places in the Bible you find the clearest evidence of the historicity not the theological importance of it, but the historicity of Adam is in the passages where Paul deals with the women's issue. So in 1 Timothy 2 and in 1 Corinthians 11. So in 1 Timothy 2, when he says, I don't allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Why? For it was Adam who was created first, then Eve. How is, how is Paul reading Genesis 2? Literally. There's a literal first creation of Adam and then later, a creation of Eve. And in 1 Corinthians 11, it's a slightly different point. Why is it a woman ought to have her head covered and not a man? For it was not the man who came from the woman, but the woman came from the man, right? So how is he reading Genesis 2? Literally, God took a, a rib from the man and shaped her into a woman and brought him to the man. And she, you know, and she's bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. So he's reading this as history. So you, know, you can't, and, on, and what about Jesus in Matthew 19 on, on divorce, right? For God established it this way in the beginning, that a man should leave his father and mother and cleave to his, his, his wife. So he's reading that as history. This is the beginning of marriage that God established. So you have to say, if you say there's not a historical Adam taught in the Bible, you have to say Jesus is wrong and Paul is wrong. And I can tell you, gentlemen, I am not going to say that. <laughs> and you aren't either. I know you're not. You, you want to be on God's team. 
Pardon me? You want, you want to be in God's team? I do. Yeah. Oh, I do. Oh, That's I do. It's a safe yes. place to be. <laughs> um, so, so next subject, um, historians have pointed out that whenever there is a renewal of the gospel, like in the Reformation and the Great Awakening and the Puritan era, there always seems to be uh, an accompanying antinomianism. Huh. And, and it seems like in the last two decades, there's been a wonderful revival of Christ in the preaching and gospel centrality. But with that, as you and I have talked about, mm-hmm. um, comes this antinomianism. Yeah. So, so what does that term mean? Uh, and, and what's the concern there with you? Yeah. So anti-namos, namos, the Greek word for law, antinomian, really means that now that we're in Christ, we're under grace, we're not under law. So how do they take that statement from Paul? Of course, he means by that we're not under the condemnation of the law any longer. It's fulfilled in Christ. Our sins are forgiven as we have broken that law. But many take that to mean we, we don't stand as the people of God as needing to keep a law, as it were, needing to obey commandments because we're under grace. And, and to think in terms of law is to deny our freedom in Christ. This is how they think of this. Uh, but what this leads them to is a really reckless and um, um, undisciplined kind of life before the Lord in which they really tolerate sin and, and say, but you know, goodness, we're sin abounded, grace abounded all the more, you know, so grace will always cover our sin. And, uh, but remember what Paul's response, I mean, he's the one who said those words, where grace abounds, sins abounds all the more. But what did he worry about right after he said that? Shall we say that we should continue in sin, that grace might increase? That's the way chapter 6 begins, right after he said that in chapter 5. So indeed, Paul has concluded, no, don't go that way. Don't go the direction of thinking that because grace always trumps sin. Grace is always greater than sin. Don't think that gives you license to sin. Instead, Realize this, that grace has brought to you union with Christ by which you have died to sin and lived to righteousness. So indeed, be a slave of obedience, a slave of righteousness. That's the way Romans 6 goes. So, you know, it's just really a mistake. Now, by the way, Dave, the the other side, the pendulum swings the other direction too with a kind of legalism and an overbearing sense of you know, never letting Christians be happy because they need to face their sin constantly. And pastors kind of constantly uh, berating people because of their sin and calling them to repentance. And I know that there are churches like that. I know that because I've heard some of the sermons online of people who are like that. And honestly, Christian people um, who hear that week after week from their pastors, it becomes wearying and discouraging to them. And what they need to know is that yes, of course we need to repent constantly, but they need to know that the grace of Christ calls them to a life of joy, a life of satisfaction in him. I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. My commandments I give you that you you might, that my joy might be in you and your joy might be made full, right? So indeed, this call really is a call to Human flourishing, not human despondency. But I think often this preaching leaves people despondent. And so it's really, boy, the pendulum swing, either direction, imbalanced, is harmful to Christian people. I think Kevin DeYoung in his book, The Whole and Holiness, sums it up really well. And he says, uh, sanctification is gospel-motivated, spirit-empowered effort. And all three of those things are so important. Amen. So sanctification is motivated by the gospel. We, yeah. we obey because of all the things you talked about. Tonight. 
We're forgiven, we're justified, we're cleansed, we're new creatures creatures in Christ Jesus. We have the Holy Spirit inside of us. So gospel-motivated, spirit-empowered. Uh-huh. The Spirit empowers us, yeah. and then effort. We have to work hard at holiness. Yeah. It's not let go and let God. Right. As Packer says, it's, it's trust God and get going. Yeah, exactly. So rely on the Spirit and, and, and beating our bodies and working hard to be holy. Um, okay. Good. So a couple more topics. Um, Let's talk about the Trinity. Okay. So, many of you probably don't know this, but theologians like Dr. Moore specialize in an area. So, I would say you're a doctrine of God guy. Mm-hmm. You've written yes. on providence. You've written yeah. on the Trinity. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and your PhD was on immutability, correct? Right. Right. Yeah. Right. So, Dr. Ware has thought a lot about this, written a lot about this. Uh, and there's, there's been some critique of your perspective on the Trinity. So, so tell us what makes your perspective and Dr. Grudem's perspective unique. What's some of the feedback you've received and how have you responded yes. to that? Right. Well, there's been a movement in the past uh, six or seven years that has read the, the church fathers and the history of the development of the doctrine of the Trinity in a way that really does rule out uh, any sense in which the Father in sending the Son, the Father in commanding and the Son obeying, the Father in creating the world through the Son, and so on, that that can involve an authority of the Father in a submission of the Son. And Dr. Grudem, Wayne Grudem, a dear friend of mine who became a friend when I taught at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and I both independently came to this understanding through our study of Scripture and taught it for many, many years. I mean, my whole adult life until six years ago, without, without any kickback. I mean, people just express gratitude for, for this because it's just grounded in the Bible so much. I mean, where do you find anything other than the Father is the one who commands and the Son obeys? The Father is the one who sends and the Son goes. The Father wills and the Son carries out the will. of So when do you, where, where do you find the Son sending and the Father going? The Son commanding and the Father obeying. The Son willing and the Father carrying out the will of the Son. I mean, you don't. It just isn't there. It's all in this one direction. And, but they, they have come to the conclusion that seeing in that an intrinsic authority and submission between the Father and the Son rooted in the Trinity um, violates the history of that doctrine in certain ways. It violates what they call the inseparable operations of the Trinitarian persons. But the way that is oftentimes understood by those people, by my critics, is inseparable so that anything the Father does, the Son does, and the Spirit does. But I ask the question, how is this not Unitarianism or modalism then, you know? I mean, isn't there something distinctive, and doesn't the Bible indicate that? A distinctiveness to what the Father does, a distinctiveness to what the Son does, and what the Spirit does. And, um, and oh my goodness, you just... So many texts come to my mind, you know, I mean, it's just like everywhere. Uh, it, it's amazing to me how much of the New Testament uh, indicates a, what, what I like to call a Trinitarian specificity. So, for example, I just encourage you to think of this as you read the New Testament. Most of the divine pronouns, the he's, him's, and his's, that refer to a divine person, most of the divine pronouns in the New Testament are not divine pronouns referring to the one God. Some are, but most of them refer to one or another 
Trinitarian person. It refers to the Father or to the Son or to the Spirit. And you just realize how rich that is. And uh, I think that the, uh, the critics of this view um, are more concerned with philosophical concepts um, that, in their judgment, are more faithful to the history of the doctrine than they are to really wrestling with the text of Scripture itself. So, and I'm sure if they heard me say that, they would scoff at that statement. I stand by it. That's what I see in their writing. Uh, is uh, is a lot a lot of conceptual ideas, a lot of philosophy, a lot of church history. Very little engagement with the text. So it's it's uh, been a very frustrating thing for me because I love the Bible. I love the revelation of God there. And what I'm hearing them say is you can't go there to me. And so it's, it's very hard. So your, your position is, is often referred to as the eternal functional subordination EFS position. Do you, do you like that term? I don't. Okay. What, what would you call I it? Do, I don't like it because the word subordination is so close to the Aryan view that's called subordinationism. Right. So I prefer not. But, but Mike Ovi, you, you know that name, who yeah, was British, principal yeah. of Oak Hill? passed away during this controversy. I think this probably hastened his death, to be honest with you. Yeah. It was so hard on him. But anyway, Mike Ovi uses EFS. Uh, but I prefer E-R-A-S. I just think it is, is a better term, eternal relations of authority and submission that flow from the eternal relations of origin. The Father is unbegotten, the Son begotten of the Father, the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Those are eternal relations of origin. Because of that, the Father who is the begetting Father of the Son has authority over the Son. The Son who is begotten of the Father is, submits to the Father. So, in other words, who they are in their identities ontologically is then reflected functionally in how they work out. So, I like E-R-A-S better. So, your, your critics have, have accused you of, of being Aryan. Um, yeah. they, and and that, that's because they would say, well, Dr. Ware... If, if the Son has always submitted to the Father, doesn't that affect his ontology or yeah. his being? But I know that talking to you, reading your books, you would say, no, I'm passionately opposed to Arius' yes, teaching. Yes, yes, right. Uh, and you're Nicene in your view of the Trinity. That's right. And, and you, would, you would fully affirm that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are co-eternal, yes. co-substantial. Absolutely. Uh, all equally God. So, so how... How else would you respond to that? Because and they would also say, yes, we agree that in the incarnation, yeah. Jesus Christ was submissive to the Father. Right. But they would say, how can you prove that before right. the incarnation, he was submissive to the Father? And if he was, doesn't that imply inferiority, therefore right. you're an Aryan? So how would you respond to yeah, that? Yeah, so let me take that authority thing first. So if the, if the Father has authority over the Son, does that mean the Father has a nature that is different than the nature of the Son? The answer is no. For the very, very simple reason that authority is not a property of one's nature. Authority is a property of relationship with another. You have authority or you don't have authority depending upon a relationship. So when you get married, does your nature change? When, when your bride now says, I do, well, you now have authority in that relationship because she now is your wife. But you are the same person you were before. You have the same nature you were before. Uh, Jesus says in Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Well, before it was given to him, was he a different person? Did he have a different nature or different natures? No. 
So authority is always a relational um, um, property, right? Uh, you, it's a, it can be it can be acquired. It can be uh, lost. A policeman turns in his badge and gun. He no longer has authority to arrest. He's the same guy, but he can't arrest somebody now. So, and it's the same same way in the Trinity. The nature of the Father and Son and Spirit is identically the same because there's one undivided divine nature that is fully possessed by the Father, fully possessed by the Son, fully possessed by the Spirit. So at the level of ontology, of the, of the being of God, there is no distinction at all between Father, Son, and Spirit. They are identical in having the identically same nature. But in their personhood, as they express that nature, they express it in ways appropriate to who each is as a person. And that involves, within the Trinity, Father, Son. I mean, even those names, it's not friend, 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 you know, or guy, 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 you know, it's father, son, and of course, spirit is a harder one to comprehend, but it, it, the, at least the father, son, that's very clear. This is a relational um, a relationship in which authority and submission are appropriate, as we see throughout the Bible. So that's, that's one thing I would say. So, so your, your critics also say, Dr. Ware, your, your position um, seems to indicate that there's two wills in God. Um, and I forget which council it was, but, but there was a council. Yeah, the sixth. Six, six, yeah, which argued that, that, that um, there's one will in God. Right. And any other view would be a heretical view. So how would you argue that there's, there still is one will in God, yeah. but, but two distinct centers of consciousness or Right. So I, I would say that there is one will of God in two senses. Number one is um, the volitional capacity is a property of the nature of God. So the ability to will, just like it is for you, you could, you could will to stand up right now and walk out the room. Don't do it. But you could will to do that, right? So, you know, we have, we have this volitional capacity that's part of our nature. Well, that's true of God in his nature. So each the Father, Son, and Spirit act upon just as they do with their love, just as they do with their knowledge, just as they do with their power. They act upon the one common nature and the properties that are true of their nature, which are all, all of the essential attributes of God. And I would argue that includes also the volitional capacity. So that's one sense in which the will of God is one. There's also a sense in which the will of God is one in terms of what the will seeks to accomplish. So you might think of this as will as telos, will as purpose, what, what, is, what is to be done, what is to be accomplished. So when salvation is done by God, it's done by the Father, Son, and the Spirit, and they are all, as it were, on the same team. I mean, they're all seeking to bring about the same result. Right? The, father, the Son is wanting to do exactly what the Father sends him to do, and the Spirit empowering the Son to bring that to pass. And, and so there's a unity of the divine will there. But then there is a distinction, where the distinction comes, is where each of them expresses that one will in distinctive, hypostatically distinctive ways, that is, ways distinctive of their personhood. So the Father expresses that will distinctively by sending the Son. I mean, just to give you one example, the, the Son uh, expresses that divine will, that one divine will, by going to become incarnate. The Holy Spirit expresses that one divine will by empowering the incarnation, Luke 135. So you, and, and, and empowering Christ to go to the cross. 
So you have each of them acting, willing and acting, in ways that service, as it were, and bring to pass the one unified will of God. But so I, I mean, I put it this way. There's one will, but three willings. And I, honestly, I, if you don't have that, I don't understand how you can make sense of the Bible, right? I mean, you know, and will is just um, so specific to persons in the Bible. Notice this. You know, I, I came not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 6.38. I came not to do my own will. Don't read that to mean, hey, I really didn't want to come. Yeah, wow. You know, I, you know if, if I had my doing, you know, I'd be back up there. You know, I didn't, no, don't read it that way. When he says, I, I came not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me, what he means is, I didn't initiate this. The Father initiated this. So the Father is initiator, son, completer, Holy Spirit empowerer in it, and each of them willing in their distinctive ways to do the one will. So that's, how, that's I think, more faithful to what you see in the Bible. This topic is such an important topic, the Trinity in general. Um, what, are, what are some resources you'd recommend uh, for our audience to read if they want to get a good, succinct summary of the Trinity and why it's so important? Yeah. Well, in terms of just a, the doctrine of the Trinity, very well stated, and in the theological discussion at the end of the book, um, it presents a view very close to my view and to Wayne Groom's view, and other, there's others who hold it as well. Um, it, it's by Robert Lethem called Holy Trinity. It is a big fat book, but it is worth it. it it's just, it goes through the whole history of the doctrine and, and very careful. Have you read it? I can't remember, David, but anyway. It, yeah. Okay. It's, it's 700 just, pages. Yeah, pages, it's, so. it's, a, it's, a, it's a handful, yeah. but it's worth, it's worth uh, every page in there. And the theological excursus, which is about the last fourth of the book, is very well done. So I would, I would encourage that. His systematic theology has a really good three-chapter version of that same discussion. Oh, okay. So if you good. want a shorter version of okay. it. Okay, yeah. good, good to know. Um, uh, Michael Reeves wrote a book, Delighting in the Trinity, a few years back, and that's such a helpful book, I think, in many ways. He doesn't really weigh in on this issue much, but when he does, just the little bit he does, it tends to side with our view, which, I don't know, it's, just, um, it's not that I... I mean, I really care about it, but I, you know, I'm not, I'm not commending it for that reason per se. It's just a really helpful book and really well done. If you want to read one on the other side um, that is really a helpful book in many ways, uh, he, although he does take issue with, with me, uh, is Scott Swain. In a recent book that he wrote in, the, in a series that Graham Cole and Oren Martin are editing on theological subjects in his book on the Trinity, Scott Swain, who is the president of Reform Seminary Orlando. Okay, one, one last topic. Immutability. Ooh. You've done a lot of work on this. Yep. Your position is a little unique. Yep. So what is that doctrine, and how is your position unique, and why does it matter? Okay, well, so immutability is the unchangeableness of God that the church has always affirmed, and I affirm but as I studied the Bible for my dissertation, and you know, I read everything I could find that was written on immutability from the very beginning of church history, and uh, I just read and read and read, and I discovered that oftentimes I felt like the church, the theologians of the church, um, wanted more to assert a kind of immutability, of immutability that was 
unchallengeable, and they did so in a way that rendered God immobile, right, unmovable in the sense of does he really act? Is he affected ever by things that happen that human beings do? Does he respond to things that happen and so on? And it just struck me as taking kind of platonic categories of perfection and applying it to this rather than than representing as well what the Bible says. So I came to the conclusion that the Bible teaches immutability of God in two ways, the immutability of his divine nature, his attributes. He never is anything other than who he is as God. So those attributes are solid and and, uh, unchangeable in an absolute way. There's a second kind of immutability that applies to the the promises and the word and the oath and the covenant of God, his, his uh, immutability of his word, and uh, that immutability is contingent immutability. Contingent upon what? God giving that word. So he promised Abraham, from you all the nations of the world will be blessed. Well, so when God makes that promise, he's, he's going to keep it. It's immutable, but he didn't have to make that promise. So that's that's a second-order kind of, of, of immutability that's not as strong as the immutability of God's character, which cannot, absolutely cannot be other than it is. But the promises of God could have been other than they were because he didn't have to create. He didn't have to make those promises. But he did. Once he makes them, it's locked in, right? It's unchangeable. God keeps his word. But I think there's also a category in the Bible of relational mutability, that is God changing with, with the changed ethical situations that happen with his people. So when they build the golden calf and Moses, Moses is with God on Mount Sinai, God gets angry at the people of Israel. So that anger of God is a change that takes place in relation to the people. When a sinner repents, his disposition changes from one of wrath to one of acceptance and and, uh, um, reconciliation with that sinner. So a kind of, um, you know, changeability that is appropriate to the changed situations that we we are responsible for. And uh, so I think that fits better, again, what you see in the Bible in regard to God, rather than just one kind of paintbrush that... (laughs) Paints all that away and just, you know, God is immutable, period. In every way, in every respect whatsoever, I think is a mistake. But that was what many in the church did say earlier. Yeah. Well, Dr. Ware, thanks for all your years and years and years of hard work in theology. Thanks for letting us benefit from those years of hard work tonight. And thanks for listening to Flock Talk, a ministry of GCF North. GCF North exists to glorify God through gospel-centered worship, evangelism, discipleship, and community. To learn more, go to our website, gcfnorthspokane.org.